Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. The show is named for Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. His official home on the internet is victorhanson.com. That's the address. The title of his great website is The Blade of Perseus, and I'll talk to you a little more about that later in the podcast, the formal home, the happy home of this podcast is John Solomon's JustTheNews.com. Check that out. We'll, we will begin our conversation today. Shouldn't be a conversation. I'll ask a question. Victor will share his immense wisdom. But we'll talk about um, the border issues. Uh, Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, held a hearing the other day. Now, this uh, late March and uh, Homeland Security uh, cabinet, whatever the hell he is, misfit. <laughs> uh, Mayorkas, well, well, oh my gosh, it was a carpet bombing, a fist fight. It was not, not a literal fist fight, but it was a tough hearing. We just learned he's coming out on 60 Minutes this weekend to say, oh, there's trouble at the border. I don't know, maybe he got religion courtesy of Ted Cruz. But we'll talk about that, some issues with the Marine Corps, the terrible, terrible murders, school shooting in Nashville, and maybe another topic. And we'll get to that, all that, right after these important messages. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, so I know you saw the um the clips from the the uh, hearing last last week, last Tuesday. It was the um uh, in the Senate and Ted Cruz went at um Homeland Security uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. I mean, he just 
like ripped into him. Uh, his, let me just read this briefly, Victor, from um, this is the Texas Tribune. It says, at the hearing, Mayorkas was grilled by Republicans, as he has been for the past year, over border issues, including the increasing number of migrant crossings, fentanyl deaths, and sex trafficking. Cruz, who has been an ardent critic of the Biden administration official, was particularly fiery on his line of questioning, blaming the secretary directly for crimes against children. The children raped. They are at your feet, Cruz told Mayorkas. And if you had integrity, you would resign. You're willing to let children be raped to follow political orders, Cruz continued. This is a crisis. It's a disgrace. By the way, Victor, there was a lot more of that. Mayorkas gave back, too. It was not uh, how I, I guess we exactly want to see uh, democracy in action, but uh, Ted Cruz needed to call him out and did. And finally, I will shut up here in, in 15 seconds, Victor, so we can get your take on all this. But um, I just, as we're recording, just before we were recorded, uh, a, an article came out on The Hill, the, the the website. It's by Julia Shapiro. It's titled, uh, Mayorkas, the number of people that are arriving at our border is at an extraordinary height. So this is from a um, a piece that's co coordinated with him appearing on 60 Minutes. It seems like Mayorkas, who has there's none, there's no there, there's no problem. I don't see any problems. Finally, in making some admission. Too little, too late, maybe. Seven million illegal people over the border. How many of them are terrorists? How many people have died there, Victor? Gosh almighty, it's a horrible thing. Your thoughts, Victor? Well, you got to remember that he was appointed by Barack Obama, and he was appointed to be, I think, the uh, head of the what we used to call citizenship and immigration. And his purpose was to uh, give a front to uh, green light illegal immigration. So let's start with the basics. The Democratic Party feels that they flip California, they flip Nevada, they flip New Mexico, they flip Colorado, and they still feel they can flip Georgia and Texas uh, and maybe Arizona, they're close, by changing the demographics and then uh, watering down restrictions on balloting. So here in California, there's 10 million, there's 10 million missing ballots. We had half of all of the illegal immigrants. They look at California and they say, wow, that state used to have eight years of Reagan, eight years of George Dickmation, eight years of Pete Wilson, eight years of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was kind of a rhino. Wow, that was 32 years of desolation. And then we had eight years of Jerry Brown, two years of, uh, what's his name? The guy that got uh, recalled. Gray Davis. Gray Davis. And then we've got uh, Newsom. So we're, we're, we're halfway there. And what they look at is California as a model. And the model was change the Democratic Party for an open borders, get as many poor people as you can to come in, water down the election laws, uh, have them as loyal constituents because of your generous entitlements and 
appeal to very wealthy people who are exempt from the consequences of their own ideology. And that's the California formula. Can I, can I add, can I add gerrymander? Yes. Uh, Jerry, uh, and, gerrymander. Yeah. Gerrymander. And, have the un- and have the unions uh, bankroll everything. Yes. And that's what they did. And that's the plan. So for that plan to work, they need a constant infusion of illegal aliens. Start with that. Because if they don't, what happens is in two generations, Mexican-Americans follow the plan, the agenda, the model of Italian-Americans in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So that, as I say, if your name is Cuomo or your name is Giuliani, it's not an accurate barometer of your politics. And we know that uh, Mexican-Americans, uh, if their name is Lopez and they're over 50, it's increasingly likely that you can't necessarily gauge their political affinities. About 40% of Hispanics are voting for Republican or conservative causes. But when you go up in the age bracket, it gets 50-50. And that's what the Democrats don't want. So they want a continual stream of poor people that need help uh, and that can be sort of massaged into the voting electorate. And so that's what he's doing. That's his job. That's his agenda. And he all knows it. But that the problem with that is they got greedy. So when Biden told people to come in and they they thought they were going to get maybe a, a million a year, but they've had seven million illegal entries. And that meant there was death, destruction, 100,000 people dying of fentanyl, of virtual a gift to the cartels, et cetera, you know, $5 million a day for the New York budget. Uh, it started a crime. I mean, they say, you know, they got mad at Trump for saying we're not bringing the best people, but it's not so much the best people. It's that when you have no audit whatsoever, you have no idea. It's kind of like the open border of the 1840s to 1890s in the old west when every american criminal on the lam where did he go he went to mexico because mexico didn't enforce their borders or couldn't and they got they didn't get the best americans is what i'm trying to say and so that's this that was his job so the problem he's having is it's an embarrassment in his mind of riches he's been so successful at destroying immigration law and destroying the border that uh, it's become embarrassing. There's just too, he doesn't know what to do. So when he keeps lying and saying the border is secure, it was almost laughable. And that's what infuriated Ted Cruz to have a guy look at him in the eye under oath and lie, say the border is secure. If what would he call not secure, Jack? If you said to Mayorkas, would you please tell me how you would define a border that was not secure? What would he yeah, say? If a, if a bunch it, of pro-lifers came over. Cubans, Cuban. Yeah, yeah right. they don't like Cubans coming. They don't, they don't like Eastern Europeans coming. But uh, so it's he's been a disaster. And I think the only he would be impeached tomorrow if the Republicans could uh, figure out whether that was going to help them or hurt them politically to do what the Democrats did. I would impeach him right now. And I know he wouldn't be uh, convicted, although. He would get a lot of votes in the Senate for conviction, not maybe 45 or so. And that would send a message to those guys. And all he had to do, this the tragic thing is Trump tried and he was tied up in the courts, DOD, Homeland Security, John Kelly. They all conspired against him. But finally, 
he did start to rebuild all the shaky wall. He had about 500, 400 miles that he reconstructed. He started about 30 or four. I know people like Ann Coulter were very critical of him, but that was largely because he was dealing with Paul Ryan the first two years and he was being sued. Once he got into the groove, I think had he been re- been reelected, the wall would be finished by now. And, I, and everybody said, well, it was stupid to say make Mexico pay, but I think there were people in that administration that had plans to tax remittances. And had they right. done done in the second term, had they done that, that would have more than paid for the wall. And so it's Mayorkas's job is to destroy uh, immigration law. And he did. And he knows it. He knows it very well. And look at all the bad things he's done. He's he fed into the lie that his own Border Patrol People were whipping Haitian people coming across when they were trying to block their entry and not whipping them at all. He never apologized for that. Joe Biden uh, piled on that lie and uh, the morale. You can. We were talking about physical labor in our last podcast and all those poor people that have to go out there every day and risk their lives. And he shows no empathy for their safety or the hard work they do. Really I have does. to believe that you... All kinds of people are in touch with you, Victor. I have to believe some yeah. border border agent. I talk to a lot of them. Yeah, they yeah. email me or they want to. They they're you know they send me stuff and and the funny thing is you know that it impacts the Hispanic communities here where I live. I had to go to the emergency room, kind of an emergency, and there were wonderful people there. The nurses, the doctors were wonderful, but. You look in the parking lot and the waiting room and the people there, and they're overwhelmed. And uh, when I drive around my um, neighborhood, it doesn't even look anywhere like it did five years ago because there are so many people that are undocumented and they have nowhere to live and they are going out in the country and they are renting a house and then they have trailers and shacks yeah. and, and it's a squatter nation. Well, now, it right? is. It, it looks like Appalachia around 1930. And it's amazing that no one cares about that. And here we are with, we're importing this massive poverty in California. These wealthy people are doing it. And I, I just can't get my, I just can't comprehend what they're, what these people that live from La Jolla to Berkeley along that coast are doing mostly wealthy white and Asian people by creating this highly regulatory state that suppresses the production of electricity, of natural gas, of oil, of safe highways, of everything for this utopian uh, Davos agenda that they can afford. And then at the same time, they import and they green light all this cheap help for their nannies, their cooks, their landscapers. And then at five o'clock in the afternoon, they don't care how they live. Right. So, you know, when it's 110 here in Salma in August, they're all in Walmart trying to get free air conditioning. Or you have a public pool. It looks like people have never gone swimming before. They're so desperate to go swimming. And you don't know how to, they have no medical care. They come across the border and they have diabetes. They have heart problems. They have, And at a very young age. One, right. one, one out of every four people admitted to a hospital in California for any reason whatsoever is found to have diabetes. Yeah. And so, I don't want to be cartoonish, Victor, but the many, many uh, illegal uh, immigrants uh, are, are working in 
uh, landscaping or some some portion of them are some jobs that require say tools tools that require gasoline the things that will be forbidden uh in a in a few years in california uh, cars that will have gasoline will be forbidden so what's expected come here we won't have the means to give you real work you'll be expected to drive Tesla's yeah. that are impossible to afford. And by the way, we're going to have solar power uh, batteries and you're not going to be able to charge up your cars. At no, night. no, it's, it's, it's insanity. <laughs> it, it is. I, I go to a local, I call it the arena where literally Jack, it's five to six cents cheaper. And it's lined up 24 hours a day with four Mexican people. And there's a five cent discount if you go in and pay cash, right? So maybe it's 10 cents total. And if you go there and you line up, I would say 90%, it takes a long time to get gas because 90% of the people are not using a credit card because they want that right. cash discount. Right. And, and that shows you how poor people are and how desperate they are to be able to afford gas. And you, t I talk to them all the time and they, they just shake their heads. And I want to think I, I can't make this. I, I look at this immigration thing and then I look at the Hispanic people that are in the California legislature. They're all they're all third, second to third generation. Kind of they came through the diversity, equity, inclusion pipeline. They all clerk for very wealthy uh, left wing people. They all make a very good salary. They're completely divorced from their constituents' concerns. They don't care about the price of electricity, the price of gas, the price of heating, the price of air conditioning, whether the 99 freeway is safe or not, whether we have enough water, whether, and they have all, they just buy into all these issues they're told to by this selfish uh, coastal corridor politicians on the left. And it's, you know, Green, 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 diversity, 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 transgender, transgender, aggressor, all this stuff. And, and yeah. at some point, I don't know what's going to happen, but the Hispanic population is going to have to wise up. I'm not going to tell them what to do. Who am I to say that? But these people don't represent the daily struggles that they have to go through as, as middle class, aspiring middle and upper middle class constituencies. Right. The constituencies of their represent, they may be voting for somebody because that he or she is an Hispanic politician, but that person's constituency is not them. It's somebody uh, in the coastal corridor, at least by the agendas that they seem to embrace. Well, Victor, we have another troubling uh, topic to discuss, and that is the shooting the murders i'm gonna call a shooting there were murders at the covenant school in nashville and we'll get to that right after this important message as a professional welder shana ford uses forge fx to practice over and over which helps her improve her skills the more muscle memory that you have the smoother your weld is Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are 
and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Before we get into our next topic, I'd like to recommend to our listeners to vi- that they visit regularly. I said it said it correctly. Uh, VictorHanson.com. That's the Blade of Perseus. Why would you go there? Well, links to Victor's appearances on other podcasts, uh, but the uh, predecessors of, of these podcasts, you'll find them there. Links to Victor's many books that he's written and or edited. And you will also links to the articles he writes for American Greatness and a syndicated column. But also Victor writes uh, pieces tw- two or three a week, typically exclusive to VictorHanson.com. They're t- we call them ultra. And to read them, you have to you have to subscribe. So I please consider subscribing. It's uh, $50 discounted for the year. If you just want to try it out for five bucks, five bucks a month gains you access. And you can also sign up uh, to subscribe to uh, the uh, free, uh, I think it's weekly email newsletter that goes out from the website from uh, victorhanson.com. So check that out. If you're a fan of Victor's writing, you will regret not having done so sooner because because there's a lot, a lot of original content there. So, Victor, uh, a little spiel by me first, and then please have at it. Uh, the, the, the shootings, wherever we see and learn of terrible shootings in America, are seem to be ranked uh, based on race and based on intersectionality. You know, a black man is killed by white cops and America can burn. A black man is killed by black cops and we can have posturing that quickly disappears. You have a white woman that's killed by a black cop and you get silence or maybe if it took place on January 6th, there's even accolades. Um, But a woman masquerading as a man shoots six people dead in a school and what we get is quickly uh, spinning and uh, something that seems to have gone already into the MSNBC memory hole. So, Victor, I, I'd like to get your thoughts on on how the media uh, perceives, treats, disdains these uh, murders that happen on uh, in America. You gotta, you gotta, yeah, you got to remember that the media is an abstraction a construct for people, and these people. By and large, I mean, there's some people that make it out of the heartland, but by and large, they're left-wing people who went to left-wing universities whose value system is to live in a big urban corridor. And to the degree that they're not from that uh, embryo, they want to be. So if they grew up in, I don't know, Indianapolis, they went to the – that was the dream of everybody is to get to the biggest uh, audience or a network news. That's where the money is. That's where the prestige is. That's where the ego is. So that's who they draw in there. And it's very hard to be conservative unless you're going to go just declare yourself, you know, Fox and you'll go with that to that one station. So they have an agenda and they're not Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor and the rest of those guys, Eric Severi, they were leftists, but had some modicum of, disinterested fairness. These are hardcore leftists. 
not even progressives, woke, hardcore people. And they go, they have a message and they superimpose it on every news story. And this particular news story, from the very beginning, it was, we have a problem, Houston. We have somebody who was a declared transgender and she was a woman. And she went in and she killed six people and executed three little girls. Executes a perfect word because that's what she did. That were nine years old and they were at a Presbyterian Christian school. So that doesn't look good for us because that was pretty brutal. But there are some things that we can leverage to salvage the story. We can make her the victim because there's transgender violence, violence against transgender people. And we'll take that manifest. We've had six manifestos that we know of in mass shootings. Every single one of them was released within 48 hours. But we're not going to put this manifesto because they're terrified. They, the law enforcement and the pressures upon law enforcement by their higher ups, whether state or local or federal, and the media in general, that this person was pretty graphic in what she set out to do, uh, which was to pay vengeance upon the people that she felt uh, would be unsympathetic to her transitioning or whatever it was. And so they had two obstacles, how to deflect from empathy for the people who were murdered to the murderer because her political cause was superior to the victims. So they did that in, in, in two ways, three ways. They demonized Christians as basically intolerant, and that was all over social media. We saw uh, the day I wrote and said, oh, they, they, they don't even have enough guts or empathy to cancel the April 1st day of vengeance, Jack vengeance. And they had all sorts of people volunteering on social media with guns and stuff to show you that. And then they finally at the 11th hour canceled it because not because they wanted to, or they thought it was inappropriate just because they thought that it would not be wise temporarily political. Right. And then the other idea was they had to make the transgender person, the victim. So and then the third agenda, of course, was the guns did it, not the shooter. And to 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 uh, accommodate those three agendas, they did not talk about the manifesto. They don't want to discuss it. They don't want to talk about the victims whatsoever or cover their empathy, have any empathy or show in uh, the tragedy that they're going through. I don't even like the word tragedy because it doesn't really use the agency of the debacle and the horrific circumstances that this shooter put them in. And then they wanted to run stories 24-7 about the unfairness of being transgender. And that's what they're doing. Uh, I don't think it's going to work because I think people, when they looked at simultaneously in New Zealand and they saw a transgendered crowd tried to tear apart a woman, or they've seen how they go after uh, Martina Navratilova, or they go after the J.K. Rowling. Rowling, they offer for the Harry Potter series, right. or the way that they have stormed uh, various uh, public agencies. It's not a nonviolent movement. And 
It's and the way that they have systematically destroyed women's sports for all practical purposes. And I think there's going to be and remember that we have a we have a lot of scientific statistics on gender dysphoria. And it's a very, very minute. It's not one percent of the population. It's like point two percent of point two of one percent. It's one fifth of one percent. And it was always dealt with in under the context of uh, mental and physical health. It wasn't a political movement. And I can remember when I first 25 years ago, when I went to Stanford, I saw a person who was transitioning, a, a scholar that wore a dress and nobody, there was no hostility toward them. Uh, but this has ballooned into the next civil rights movement. And it's now, uh, it's now, it has to alter the data is what I'm saying. Right. So that it, it's incorporated a lot of things that were not originally gender dysphoria. There has been a, a disorder called transvestism where heterosexual people, not just homosexual, but heterosexual people like to dress in the clothes of the opposite sex. Everybody's known that's, as I said before in a broadcast, that's all through Petronius' Satyricon. And there has been transsexuals, and these were general, you know, that, that wanted to alter their, so that's in a poem of uh, Attis poem by Catullus about a person lops off his testicles. Uh, in a right for Sibylle. And there's a passage in Diodorus about people who were born that were hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodites are good, Hermes and Aphrodite. Right. So that happens. But this movement has tried to convince America that it's an epidemic. And to do that, it has to proselytize and it has to what the right calls groom. And, and there's things that are about it are so bizarre because it was on the left. It was Hillary Clinton that talked about the children. And we have been raising the age of consent over the last 50 years for sexual relations, consensual sexual relations. We right. have really upped the penalties for any uh, any type of older person having sex with an underage person. If you download some kind of nutty, horrific uh, pornographic material, you're going to go to prison almost daily in the San Joaquin Valley. There's a story of some weirdo who's home and goes to some dark website, apparently, and downloads something and they find him in a nanosecond. So right. that's what the drift was. But then along comes transgender. And suddenly we throw out that whole canonical approach so right. that there's now talk about, well, maybe they're not just people who are under the age of consent, they're not, we can't call that pedophilia or pederasty. Maybe it's attraction to a minor rather than pedophilia or pederasty. And then we're, we're also, this is even stranger, these drag shows where they keep saying it's just an art form, but it's almost daily that somebody goes to one of them and then downloads on the internet a man dressed up as a woman with children there and in the dance uh, routine, they're simulating sexual intercourse. They're humping the air or they're touching their genitals or something in front of children. And I thought that the left, given the trajectory of all of their lectures and sermons, that would be especially offensive. But no, this transgender topic, it, it we saw that with black comedians. 
it it, it trumps the identity politics. It's a more it's it, it's the now uh, holy grail of identity politics. Well, right, and I think Victor, you know, today is the day as you mentioned that was supposed to be this day of vengeance, but uh, which I would would have assumed was going to be a day of violence and riots and in select cities and destruction, probably with no arrests. But uh, there seems to be a, a melding of ant- the Antifa uh, mindset, or maybe ac- the actual Antifa, uh, with this um, transgender activism community, which has already shown violence uh, in, in other ways where, where you have... Uh, yeah, you know, the the lesbian community uh, does not uh, is, is segments of them don't appreciate what's going on here. Or the feminist community, like you're not a you're not a woman, you're a man. You still got a Johnson going on here, and some of those people at certain places they get beaten up uh, and and well, you saw them beaten up or vastly intimidated. So there's is really some testosterone and clubs and uh, probably guns. Uh, not probably, we know there are guns. Because this I mean, this guy, woman guy, uh, she targeted one of these kids specifically. That she had a history. She had a. I know that people. I I wrote in a column that she had a history of uh, emotional disorders, and they somebody said, "Well, they don't have a red flag law." I don't care whether they have a red flag law. It's if there's a there's federal gun laws as well, and the fact that she bought a weapon with a history of mental disorder should have been a wake-up call to somebody, right. whether the gun owner or somebody. Somebody had to see her or communicate with her, and she was obviously disordered. And my point when I discussed this with Sammy was just simply two things. If we had a federal law that said, if you go into an institution, K-12, through a school, and you shoot somebody and you kill one person, you're going to serve a lifetime sentence with no parole. And two, and two, we enforce existing gun laws, just enforce them. And if you have any emotional history or you're a felon, you don't get a gun. And if we and you're in violation, if you possess them, that would be all we need to do. And it would stop. But we can't do that. And three, if you had a designated people within the school, ex-policemen retired that were just patrol and would have uh, access to a firearm and they could stop it immediately because these police were wonderful. But it took them about 16 minutes to get there. Once they got there, they were wonderful. Right. They weren't like what we saw. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But a counterpoint. Yeah. But the point is, it takes a while. If you had somebody on site. And you could see that in apparently some of the social media or email uh, messaging that she had that she passed up on a site that she felt was too secure. Right. And so out of all that reality, the left then just, as I said, has an agenda that she's a victim. Christians are oppressive and they got what they deserved and we're not going to get to read what she wrote. Well, I think there's and there's more coming, not necessarily, you know, more school shootings, but this day of vengeance, this trans uh, violent trend trendingness is uh, I think is is, you know, uh, it's very funny. I, I in 1980, I watched this, you know, I was 26. I, I just you know, I, I watched this uh, 
something like this go on. You would turn on the news and it was the Soviet Union was on the march, whether it was in the Middle East or into Afghanistan or their blue water. And then it was every single day, the Iranian hostage crisis, every night. And you would hear Jimmy Carter say something and you, they just, the Iranians hated Jimmy Carter. They hated him more than Reagan because they felt he was weak and sanctimonious. Right. And then, and he was. yes. And then we had this oil crisis. So I can remember uh, people, I would go to fill up on the way from back here to the, the farm and uh, people would have gas can gasoline in their trunk. It was really dangerous. And there'd be lines everywhere. And then you would hear about the invasion of Afghanistan. And then that was the summer that I started farming. And I would go into the local ag store and I would see something I'd never seen before or since. That would be marks a lot, uh, a marker pin with bags of pesticide or sulfur or copper crossed out. You know, on price, sits there for a month they raise the price, sits there for a month, they have to raise the price because the, the replacement bag is so high. And it was up to about, you know, 12, 12% inflation. And then you had interest rates. And I didn't have a car and I had uh, a child. So I went to go look at used cars. And I can remember that guy put his arm around me and said, well, Mr. Hansen, we got a used Pontiac it's eight years old. And for you, I'm going to give you a good deal. We'll finance you for 17%. How's that? That was considered a good car loan. Mortgages right. were, I don't know, 12 I remember they were up to 19% at one yeah, point. Yes. And then I had a, a rich uncle who was very greedy, and he used to come and chuckle while we were going broke farming. I liked him, but he was very greedy. I, I, I know people are going to be offended because they'll know who I'm. You you talked about him once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, I was the most sympathetic to him. I liked him, so I'm not saying that I didn't like him. But he would come and he'd laugh at me and he said, <laughs> "You're out there working all day. You're losing money. I'm getting 13 percent on my T bills." And he had you know several million dollars in the bank. So it was a it couldn't go on like that. And Carter was having all of these crazy. You know, there was Burt Land, all of this other stuff, and the country was going to hell. And there was a, here was this Reagan guy, and everybody said he had no foreign policy. He ran, uh, he tried to run, and as you remember, way back in 1980, uh, 1968. For 68, right. Yes, and then he flirted with it again in 76, and Ford, excuse me, in uh, 76, yeah. And four. He more than flirted with it. Yes, he, yeah, yeah. he tried, yes. Right. So this was the third time around. He was too old. He had no foreign policy experience. He'd been out of office too long. Grade B actor. And I, I just watched that campaign. And he said things like, there will be no hostages. There will be no gas line. And everybody thought wow he just, he won't i have a plan he wasn't that specific but the point was they were dead even in may and june and he wasn't he really didn't break it open uh until you know like october it started to right. break open and people just collectively said i don't know what my politics are the reagan democrat right. the blue dog whatever you call them these were union people 
it was kind of a foretaste of Trump, but to much greater degree, they said they can't go on like this. It, forget politics. This man has destroyed the country. Right. And uh, he was just saying crazy things about Israel. Uh, Carter was. He loved uh, Sadat. He hated Begin. Um, anyway, the point I'm making is that this is similar, but to a much greater magnitude. When you look at the border, when you look at Afghanistan, when you look at Ukraine, when you look at the new Russian, China, Saudi, Turkey, India, Iran alignment that's growing, when you look at oil prices and gas prices and inflation and bank failures and the lowest, I think it's the, the, the nadir of racial relations. I've never seen it in my entire life so bad. Uh, and it was all self-created, is what I'm saying, by this man, Joe Biden, and his uh, cabinet of dunces. And what I'm saying is that at some critical point, it can't go on. And you're going to I think that people are going to just silently, without much uh, expression or, or um, publicity, just say collectively it can't go on. If you want the United States to continue this guy and these people cannot continue because they're destroying the country. And I think there's going to be a blowout if, and I think they know it. And and that's why, as we talked in the earlier broadcast, that's why they're going after Trump. They want him. They want him to be the nominee and they want to enfeeble him and ridicule him and uh, tie him up in litigation and be in jail and something. And then by default have Biden. Well, you know, Victor, yeah, you're right. We talked about that on our previous podcast. And this, the strategy of that can be seen many, many places. Remember Harry Reid, when he uh, won re-election to the Senate, I think it was in, in uh, 2010. And there was a woman, I forget all the names here. There was a woman who was a really viable yes. Republican candidate, but, but, Reed and company funded efforts to promote the. Is her nice name, was lady. her name Ang- Angle? Christy Angle? No. I could, yeah, it could have been. I I apologize to our listeners, but but that's why how how he, how, how Harry Reed was reelected. You remember also in um, in Delaware, where that Christine O'Donnell became the yeah. candidate. It was a kook, and she beat uh, Castle in the primary. So, so funding the most most likely to lose in the general election uh, candidate is a is a, is a well known Democrat uh, strategy. But maybe we should talk, Victor, about um, since you raised uh, the Sharon. I think her name was Sharon. I just, Sharon. Angel? It was Sharon. Yeah, yeah but Sharon. Sharon. She actually she came to National Review once. I must yeah. say she was a nice lady. But yeah, she uh, was. It was, it was like a yeah, she box wasn't. of rocks. She wasn't <laughs> up to. She wasn't up to running against a man who got on the floor of the Senate and said that Mitt Romney never paid his income tax, and then after. Uh, Mitt Romney, right. Mitt Romney lost, and he was asked about that because he had no evidence. He said it worked, didn't it? Yeah, it worked. Yeah. He was one of the most offensive, ridiculous, and off-putting senators we've ever had. Yeah, terrible man. As far uh, as being corrupt too, that whole family was corrupt. Came, yeah, on a hundred hundred fifty thousand dollars a year salary. Yeah. Well, they had every every contract was either one. Branch of the family was a lawyer, construction. They knew about all of the the public works projects, and they yeah. all ended up very wealthy. Well, uh, let's let's look a little 
now, if you don't mind, about 2024, you mentioned the the the, um, the box that Democrats are trying to put Donald Trump into. Uh, to, to see, but to see that he is the Republican nominee, uh, two things come up I'd like to throw at you and get your uh, thoughts on. I don't think we've really ever talked much about Mike Pence. And I did. I mentioned on the previous podcast that the last couple of days um, I was in Washington, National Review Institute had a. Uh, summit and Mike Pence was there and spoke and I I was you know I was like Mike Pence but I have to say he really um, he he was uh, kind of impressive uh, it's not like he hasn't been campaigning but he's run for Congress you know, he's governor it's not like he doesn't know how to talk to crowds but he seemed to uh, he seems to be gelling somehow whether that means he even really stands a chance of being the nominee uh, is beyond me but so one thing I your thoughts uh, about Pence would be, I'd love to hear them. But second, though, it's maybe a little, a little narrow of a thing, but Megyn Kelly was, was there and she was, uh, she on the stage with Michael Brendan Doherty, who's a great writer for National Review. And they were talking about things and you've been on Megan's uh, podcast. I recommend it to our listeners. She's terrific. Um, just, uh, just a great, great podcast. Um, and she, and it's very popular. And if you were conservative, and she's sort of right of center, you know, she doesn't wear a Republican label on. But if I had a new book come out, I'd want to desperately get on that show so it gets, you know, to her large audience. Well, somebody who has does not want to go on her show is is uh, Governor DeSantis. So she raised this. You know, what's the matter? I'm, I mean, I'm not going to give him softball questions. I'm, I'm a journalist. This is Megyn Kelly talking uh and i i so I, we know desantis has this uh i'm gonna pick my my uh slots because i'm gonna dictate i'm not gonna have people dictate to me uh when i appear what i say etc but at some point i wonder you know she it struck me when she talked about him it seemed like um i don't know it seemed like there's a little bit of in timidity timidity is yeah, the wrong uh, word but yeah i'd start with Let's go through her and then him. Sure. Megan Kelly, I think, and I've been on her podcast, is developed into one of the best journalists in America because she is tough. She's sharp. She's intelligent and she's very conservative, but she's fair and she's got a lot of data. And I've never I've watched her podcast. I've been on it. I don't I can't think of a, a situation where she brought up some surprise quote that was that taken out of context with right. a deliberate intent of trying to destroy. She, she doesn't do that. She tries to go look at a record and then look at what people, people she thinks are concerned about. And if you take Ron DeSantis, okay, so he's an ideal candidate. So I'm trying to think right now what Megan would, given her history, would probably think. And Megan, I think, would say, what what are the people who are on the fence, they don't know whether to vote for Trump or DeSantis. What are they concerned about? Trump, we know what that is. Well, he curb his excesses, tweeting, gratuitous slurs, da-da-da. But what are they worried about DeSantis? Ah, will he be seen by the never-Trumpers or the Romneyites as a way of the old Bush Republicans getting back as a conduit into the party, right? And then we'll lose the new... Uh, that's what... I. I don't I'm not I'm just speaking hypothetically, but I think that's probably what she would ask him about. Right. 
and, and, and should and, fair, and, fair and should and should ask him, and right. he's going to be asked that by everybody when he runs for office. And so it would be the best thing in the world to prep for that. Look at the book and think. Ron DeSantis would say, if I was going to have a balanced interview where they were going to allow me to extrapolate where I wanted to and where they wanted to, where should I really bone up? Then he should have that prepared. And then she could go back and forth and she wouldn't be vicious. I know her. She wouldn't. She'd be fair. So it would be actually, I think, a wonderful platform for him so that people would not say this is a Fox News softball, right? Or something like that. It, it would it would be, I think it would be, I think he'd handle it well. So I don't understand that myself. And uh, I don't, I've never seen him in a situation where there was a negative question that he didn't do well, right? Right. No flubbing. So he does, right. he, yeah. Yeah, he does well. So I think he should do that. And it's not going to be a hit piece from her. I know her. She's going to be... Basically, these are what Republicans are con- are in a dilemma right now. These are the questions they're asking me. This is what I'm going to put to the candidate. That's 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 the sh- long and the short of it. He should go on there. I think he'd do well. I'd advise him to do it immediately, and I think he should do more of that. He right. needs to do that. But I guess one of the things is the absence of that does start to seem seems to start a sense of. Timidity, which again is, is the wrong word, but I, uh, uh, it's at some point, you know, st- strategy can can uh, fail. And, and you should also notice that yes, Trump does not go on CNN. He doesn't go on MSCB. He does softball stuff with Sean Handy. I understand that, but Trump, when he had those press conferences and they went after him, that's when he did the best. When they say, oh, how racist it is to use. Why are you using the China virus? And he goes, China, China, China was the people who who created it. This is, you know, Ebola, uh, Lyme disease, China. He was very good at that. It was. Yeah. And he and, he, and so I and I've seen him uh, on clips. DeSantis, when they went after him about Disney, they went after him the other day. Oh, you lost. So you haven't seen anything yet. Right. I'm just getting started. And then when they pressed him on critical race theory and all, he said, this is the where woke comes to die. I want to tell you that. So he's good at that. And it would be good for him to do that. Well, Victor, back on the other p- part of this, uh, you know, I saw what I saw at the summit. So be it um, whether Mike Pence performed well or not there. It, it may be irrelevant to the to the question. Um uh, but you have a sense of Mike Pence. What are your what are your thoughts about about him? Maybe uh, as a can just as Mike Pence or uh, and Mike Pence as a candidate for for uh, president in twenty twenty four. He's a very decent person. I, that's what I admire about him. He's honest. He's fair. He's competent. He's in an impossible situation because. Until 2016, I don't think his his political career was going to be going on beyond his governorship. Do you? I don't I really, think so. I don't know. And that's not a, an indictment of him or criticism. It's just that he, he was reaching an age where you'd look at retirement. He'd had a successful congressional career. He was a... Uh, a governor and he was a Midwesterner. He, he reflected all of the bedrock values of the middle, the Midwest. 
Right. And then he and then Donald Trump appointed him. Doesn't mean he has to be loyal to Donald Trump on every issue. But the point is that Donald Trump uh, elevated him to a national level of celebrity, influence, visibility. And he was a very good vice president. He was very sober. He was extremely loyal. And I think he was put into an impossible situation where Trump basically said, there was no way in the world that it was going to be constitutionally politically viable for Pence to stop the electoral college voting. It just wasn't going to happen. I like John Eastman, but it was not going to happen. So then this idea that he was disloyal was unfair. All that said, when, when you look at it, you say to yourself, had he not been associated with Trump and given this, would he be where he is now? No. And then he's there where he is now because of Trump, but he can't be, he's going to run against Trump. So he has to be critical of Trump. But if he's going to be critical of Trump, then Trump's going to call him disloyal. And so notice what the problem with all these candidates are. Nikki Haley was elevated to national status by Trump. Pompeo was a very very solid, sober uh, congressional, you know, person, congressman. And then he was CIA director and he was secretary of state. He did a wonder. I thought he did a wonderful job. It was terrific. Right. But it, but it was because of Trump. Right. Pence was because of Trump. And then it was a little bit more tenuous with DeSantis. But Trump being Trump was able to leverage that and say that he cried and he went and I, I endorsed him. I, don't, I think that's exaggerated. Even the crowd in Waco didn't buy it because they went silent. But the point I'm making is that all of those candidates have a dilemma because they were not national brand names. You know what I mean? They didn't have a... a when you had Obama running against Hillary, Hillary couldn't say, I made Obama or she he worked for me. That's what I'm trying to say. And... It, make, it makes it very difficult to run against someone that the public might perceive was your benefactor. And right. That's number one. And then number two, you, your constituency matters. So Mike Pompeo has a congressional constituency, but it's very difficult to have a secretary of state constituency on a national level. And the same thing with Nikki Haley with these appointed offices. She is not a senator or she she was appointed by Trump. And I know she was a governor, but not she has more of that than Pompeo as a congressperson. And so does Pence. But they don't have a national constituency like Reagan did. Reagan was not just a former governor. He was a constituency for the new conservative Republican Party. And they don't you can't identify a national movement with Pence or Pompeo or Haley. And I think that's what DeSantis is trying to do is to make a national movement associated yeah. with him. And it's something like, I am going to continue the MAGA agenda, but I'm going to get even rather than mad. In other words, I'm not going to say or do anything that distracts from implementing this agenda as quickly as possible. Yeah. I'm going to make perfect appointments. I'm not going to have Omarosos or you know, Scaramucci's or that's, that's going to be his message. And, and none of the others who you mentioned are in a position right now 
because they're not in office, et cetera, to do anything to they're not, actually they're not, fight back or punch yeah, the local uh, folks. I, in the I, I, I have empathy for them because I was thinking that the other day. What can Haley or Pompeo or Pence do as far as legislation or policy enactment? None, because they're not in office. And then I thought, where is their national ideological movement? Maybe Pence is evangelical or Nikki Haley is to resurrect the neocon movement or Pompeo is to get the old Scoop Jackson hawkish. I don't know what they are, but they haven't resonated yet. And DeSantis has a better chance because he's in office. He's got a very brilliant record as governor, and he's trying to create a national movement of competent MAGA, no no detours, no cul-de-sacs, get it done quickly, go nullify this left-wing revolution by, you know, kind of like uh, Youngkin in, in Virginia is similar. He's, he's, right. a, he's a governor, and his message is, I can appeal to suburbanites and everything. I'm not going to compromise my conservatism, but I get things done, and I, I know what has to be done, and people will appreciate that. So I think... Of the three, of all the candidates, a Yunkin, a DeSantis, uh, have the best shot uh, against against the advantage, Trump. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, Victor, uh, we have time for one more uh, topic to discuss today, and that's I don't know the sad state of our forces related oh, to boy. China, and we'll get to that right after this final important message. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. And Victor, so many times in the last couple of years, you've talked about military, Secretary of Defense, General Milley, the obsessions with wokeism. And, you know, what's what the priority of the military seems to be flying pregnant corporals to, you know, blue states so they get free abortions. Meanwhile, you know, America is at is at risk. So the a Marine Corps commandant that was testifying before Congress the other day, General David Berger, which I'd like to get your thoughts about uh, him, Victor. But he, he said that the amphibious fleet is 35 percent, just 35 percent of what's needed to keep China at bay in the Pacific. Never mind whatever else the amphibious fleet is needed for. Uh, Victor, what are your thoughts about that? Um, assessment and any thoughts about uh, if you have about uh, uh, General Berger? I, I know nothing about him, so I'd be interested. Well, the Marine Corps has been the most resistant to woke, but it's still woke. And we're kind of like the Byzantine army in the 13th, 14th century. We're in decline and we uh, our ends, our responsibilities, we don't have the means to to administer them. That's just a fact. So we're all over the world. You know, I don't know how many 
deployments, 140 or something all over with little outposts. But we're sort of like the British Army in 1900 or maybe 1850 when Dickens, as I wrote in a column, was talking about David Copperfield or Bleak House where the core of the empire was rotting. And that was our equivalent maybe of Portland or San Francisco or Washington or New York. And yet we're all over the world without the mechanisms running a $33 trillion debt. When we went into the first Gulf War, Jack, 91, the ratio of debt to GDP was 40%. We owed 40% of our annual GDP aggregate. It's 130 now. So there's, and then we have Biden in there with these enormous new social. So when you keep adding to all the green agendas, all of the bailouts, all of the amnesties, all of the the seven million illegal. All you just keep doing this. All of the benefits. There's not going to be any for uh, the things that count in the military. And you have a six percent inflation, six to eight percent, and you have to increase in spending by that, or you're cutting. And we're spending. I think we're going to increase. It's about three percent. And Biden keeps saying how he's rebuilding it. But then you look at the billions of dollars that are, what is the military spending compared to China in things like retirement benefits and this seven or eight billion dollar of ideological instruction? It means that you're not buying artillery shells. You're not buying more Patriot batteries. You're not increasing the F-35, the the Raptors. You're not having enough ship. Uh, Navy's in the worst shape. We should... We should have four or five hundred ships right now, if given what we are obligated, at least whether formally or de facto obligated to come to the assistance of an Australia or South Korea or Taiwan or the Philippines or Japan. We don't have the wherewithal to do it. And we're just talking about the hardware. The Marine, the Marine general is talking about the hardware. But uh we're short one whole army division in recruitment. And the Heritage Foundation has a new study out on the status of the armed forces. It's not hysterical at all. It says they're still very competent, but they're being insidiously eroded by uh, turning off something that's been characteristic of our podcast, turning off a lot of people. They're not as explicit as we have been, but if you read the report translated, into politically incorrect language, it runs something like 75% of the people who die uh, in our war, whether it's fair or not, whether we want to talk about statistics are white males from the middle and lower classes, often from rural and southern states. Okay. These are the people who Austin and the chief of naval operations and Milley have basically blanketly accused of being racist. And these are the people who are the targets of all these indoctrination programs, diversity, equity, inclusion. Okay, fine. You want to do that? They're not signing up. They are almost entirely responsible for the shortfalls in recruitment and the loss of morale, along with the debacle in Afghanistan and the larger sense that we haven't really won any of these wars. Uh, Iraq is a lot better off than Afghanistan, obviously, but the Libyan thing was a disaster. 
Afghanistan proved to be a disaster. So you can't ask America to keep sending their children to faraway places where you don't want to win the conflict or you're unable to, but uh, you're going to send them off under the cloud of suspicion that they're racist. And then there's a great deal of animosity in the military. And I can tell you that because I talked to a lot of officers off the record. Uh, I would say it starts somewhere around lieutenant colonel toward colonels uh, that want to be one stars, one stars, that want to be two stars, two stars, that want to be three stars, three stars, that want to be four stars, four stars that want to retire to a million dollar consultancy, lobbying, corporate boardship. And the, the sense is below lieutenant colonel that those guys that, you know, if they're of a certain age, they don't they're not going to make it. And that's going to be the terminal rank. But my point is this, that they feel that the wokeness is not sincere, that it was politically driven and officers to be promoted will not be evaluated on military efficacy. How many good landings on a carrier, how well artillery hits the target, how many people can be deployed uh, successfully without an accident. And, and it has terrible morale because when they see officers that are pandering to these woke agendas for their own promotion, or maybe put it another way, their own survival, they, they lose morale. And so it's, it's like the commissariat, as I pointed out before in the Soviet Union or what you saw in Mao's armed forces, the Red Guard. And then superimposed on this whole problem is that we have 370,000 students here from China, many of them in engineering, computer engineering, coding. And for the last 30 years, they've just expropriated when they went back to China, much of our technology. So they've got a larger, they will have at the end of the year, a larger strategic nuclear force than we do. Uh, they're going to have, they have more ships than we do. They're making, uh, Matt Pottinger has an article out. He was at our military history group that China is apparently readying itself for war. They're making bomb shelters along the coast opposite of Taiwan. They're, so it, it kind of reminds me of 1939, 1940, 1941. When we were clueless, disarmed. The army was smaller than Portugal's in 1940, 39. And then we took an enormous hit in 41 and 42 until we woke up. And I don't know if we can wake up. We're completely unable to deter China from Taiwan, just a fact. And maybe yeah. we can stop them, but we would lose probably a carrier. We'd probably lose 30,000 Americans. And I don't but know what would happen. The only thing we have over their head is we could expel every student and every joint venture and kick out everything like TikTok and stuff, and then hope we could we'd go into a recession with estrangement from the Chinese economy, but maybe we, we could recover better than they could. Yeah. And then I don't know what they do. Uh, we had Stephen Quay on our last podcast, and he was really telling us that there was gain-of-function research going on in the Wuhan lab from data that's been released. That Still is still is and unfortunately for us uh they're looking at types of viruses that would be up to 10 times more lethal than the coronavirus and 
Gosh. What do you do? Like, so I, I know what you do. You name a building at Holy Cross after Anthony Fauci. That's what you do. It's ridiculous. Oh, remember, remember, he said there's no such thing as gain of right. function, that he right. was supporting all these people. As I said at that podcast, all the people who died from Corona and, I, and people like me that was sick for nine months uh, from a Chinese engineered virus and to be told that it wasn't engineered or it was from a raccoon dog, some old story that Chinese data was leaked for that right. purpose. It's really disgusting. But my point, the larger point is that we have gut check time. At some point, some president's going to have to say, we're really going to have to cut our responsibilities and go into a fortress America. Or we have responsibilities toward NATO, toward Japan, toward Australia, toward the Philippines, toward South Korea, toward Taiwan, and toward our few remaining allies in Africa or South America that haven't been bought off by Chinese infrastructure. And we're going to up the defense budget. You know, it was Matthew Ridgway when they asked him about Korea, and he went over there after the debacle of the Yellow River, and he saved Korea. Um, and we were, they had to get uh, Sherman tanks out of parks, Jack. They had to, in America, they were starting to, at World War II, they were putting Shermans and, you know, displays at fairs. Right. They had to, they had, they weren't producing anything. And they had to beep them up. They weren't as good as, uh, you know, T-34, Russian kid. So it was, it was the same thing. And he said something that was very controversial. He said, you have to have a big defense budget because it deters the enemy, but it also creates a muscularity in your own country. So you don't fund things right. that are superfluous. Right. And you, you just don't have the wherewithal to, you know, public uh, Pentagon drag shows or, I don't know what all these social programs that we're doing, the woke stuff or discussions of reparation, all of that stuff, not when your national security is threatened. And, and I think he's right about that. But, I'm sorry to ask this. Rick. I know you you may have just been making a, a, a broader comment, but have there been drag shows at the Pentagon? That was a big issue that uh, Lloyd Austin was Matt Gates really pinned him down in congressional testimony. He denied it, and he wouldn't answer those. So Gates kept saying, mentioning Air Force bases in which these things yeah. took place. And he said, the Pentagon doesn't approve. And he said, does that mean you didn't fund it? Does that mean, he, he said, I just said the Pentagon does not approve. But even if they didn't give the money, they gave right. the infrastructure and the facilities toward it, which is a de facto stamp of approval. And, and Gates mentioned two or three bases. Uh, in which this was going on. So I don't know. The How has this become a religion in America? It's I don't just know. the I, drag show is is the pinnacle of our culture now. It's just, well, I mean, it's it's that old canard that, that about every, uh, you know, about every 50 to 60 years in democracies, they go completely stark raving mad. So during the Gilded Age, the 1890s, before the big bank panic, people were nuts. And then the late 50s, 60s, into the 70s, they went nuts. I saw it at UC Santa Cruz when I was an undergraduate. They were completely crazy, Jack, completely insane, those yeah. students. I sat in a, a class on the Peloponnesian War and saw these snotty-nosed kids from Beverly Hills come in and overturn chairs and say, you're getting out for the Vietnam Moratorium. And about three of us said, this will be fun. Try to make us do it. 
and you know they backed off but i saw that stuff i saw faculty members swimming in the pool naked with students it was just nuts i saw in the dorm people with drug uh you know marijuana lsd with price tags on the door and it was crazy and then the 80s came and we got out of it and now it's it's been um, unfortunately we're in that 60-year cycle i guess and we're completely crazy right now and there's gonna and we just hope that we can sober up how does it happen it just mass insanity it's like hula i don't know why all of a sudden a dunkin yo-yo when i'm fourth grade everybody's crying unless they had one and then when i was like six everybody had to have a hula hoop and then when i was in graduate school everybody had these crazy things called pet rocks with your name it was nuts and what were those little chia whatever they were those little plants chia pets yeah they're still uh handy christmas gifts so yeah so my point is <laughs> they're harmless go, they're harmless compared to a yeah, drag, we, a drag we queen in a kindergarten we go collectively you know i don't know why everybody was wearing polyester pantsuits right women and and men remember they were wearing those <laughs> le- leisure suits <laughs> the, the the powder blue men's leisure suit with <laughs> and they go crazy well that's what right. we're doing right now we're yeah. since 2020 yeah. <laughs> We've been in three years of just mass hysteria. Yeah. I think it was COVID. I think it was the George Floyd. I think it was the hatred of Trump. Whatever it was, it's destroyed the country for three years. And I hope this is going to be like the 60, yeah. 70 madness that peters out. Well, Victor. I hope there's a Reagan somewhere that says it's not yeah. going to continue. Well, uh, we may have one, but we can't uh, We can't pick favorites on the show. So, um we're, we're almost out of time. I have to. I want to make an appeal to our listeners. Uh, uh, there are two books. I one I have, and one I want to recommend. Cat uh, Timp, my dear Cat Timp, who many of you see on on Gutfeld. I don't know, Victor. I know you were you were on Gutfeld once. I don't know if Cat was on with you. Yeah, she was. But, she was, yeah. and she was. I taught. Um... Oh, that's right. At Hillsdale, you taught yeah, her. 20, right? I think I think the uh, I didn't. I I saw her. She doesn't remember, but I actually talked to her once. She was a student about my class. I don't think she could take it, but oh. I remember her seeing her on campus. Maybe, gosh, my first year or two, two thousand four or five. I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I I have a vague memory. I love Kat. Kat used to work at National Review, and I'm uh, close to her. She's got a book. So April eighteenth is an important day for non-leftist women, I don't know what the cat would call herself, conservative, moral, libertarian, books coming out. She's got a book, uh, uh, You can't, uh, Cat Temp, You Can't Joke About That, Why Everything is Funny, Nothing is Sacred, and We're All in This Together. And she sent me a, a, an advanced copy. It was very oh, kind good. to her. And then uh, uh, the same day, though, of more policy interest, Heather McDonald has a book coming out. I just saw this today, Victor. I'm, I'm, I've already pre-ordered it. Um uh, when race trumps merit, how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty, and threatens lives. I mean, Heather is a rock star, and uh, I this I got to get my hands on this book. I want to recommend. So we talk about this these issues you do, Victor, with such such uh, grace and uh, importance. And I, I would think this would be the kind of book uh, uh, that our uh, listeners would like. If they're not familiar with Heather, she writes for um, City Journal. She's, yeah, she, she's wonderful. Yeah, she really is. She's very courageous and 
I, I remember that, and I've had some disagreements, I think, about the Trump candidacy in 2016, whether she asked some questions once when I gave a lecture, but they were very intelligent questions. Yeah. She's, uh, she's a polymath. She she writes about culture, art, everything, but it's it's fearless, and she doesn't get intimidated. Right, right. She, I, I really like her. I think yeah. she's doing a wonderful job. You'll find her name on the masthead of City Journal, with, along with one Victor Davis Hanson, who's also a contributing editor. And uh, I, I don't know, this is just sitting on my desk while we're talking. We talked about California before. They have a special issue out. Can California be golden again? The entire issue is dedicated to California. I don't know that you've seen it, Victor. I just got it, and I'm going to look at it. But uh, that's uh, uh, City I Journal. I saw it. Yes, I did see it. It's, it's a uh, very good issue. Everybody's- oh, it's a Terrific magazine. Brian Anderson's a wonderful editor. Yeah, so the sad thing, sad thing is that, you know, it's Joel Kotkin, it's Ed Ring, it's Schellenberger, it's all these people from all across the political spectrum all have the right solutions. They've diagnosed the problem. They've told us uh, what the therapy, the, the correction should be. They've given us a prognosis if we don't do it, and they have no ability to stop the train wreck. Yeah, it's just it's it's the weirdest thing in the world. Yeah. Gavin Newsom is probably the worst governor we've ever had, maybe in American history. Yeah, he's I really, mean, how... a, really a not toxic person. He really yeah. is. He's he's got cocky. Calif- he's yeah. cocky. He's entitled. He's spoiled. He's a Bay Area rich kid. And if you think something, I've got an article coming out in the next new about the nexus jack between Stanford University. Silicon Valley and Bay Area politics as a model of this new Democratic Party nationwide of big money on the left, hard left politicians, and the veneer of culture and respectability and snottiness, snobbery that Stanford went And you look at it all. People forget that San Francisco gave us the most powerful politicians in the United States. They gave yeah. us Nancy Pelosi. They gave us Diane Feinstein, head of the Judiciary Intelligence Committee. They gave us Barbara Boxer. She's a Chinese lobbyist for years. They gave us Willie Brown that ran California. They gave us Jerry Brown that ran for president. They're going to give us Gavin Newsom, who's going to run for president. They control searches, uh, Internet searches, Apple, Google, Facebook. Stanford gave us Bankman Freed. And the FTX, they gave us Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes. They gave us the Stanford debacle at the law school. They gave us all sorts of scandals. They have scandals with the president. They have scandals. Uh, they had scandals in the business school. They had scandals before the law school, earlier law school. And uh, my God, that trifecta of Bay Area politics. Nine trillion dollars in uh, market capitalization, Silicon Valley, and the new Stanford University is is what defines the nationwide yeah. Democratic Party. So you're writing this this for the new cri- the new criterion. Yeah, it's all done. It's okay, done, it's in typeset. It's going to be in the next. It's a very long article. It's almost six thousand words. It's in the oh. next issue. Of the new, I'm doing the final uh, edits. Okay. Well, folks, be on the lookout for that. Google the new criterion. And uh, I think you'll probably have to subscribe, but it's an excellent, excellent magazine. Uh, Roger Kimball's the editor, and Victor uh, interviewed Roger recently on, on a couple weeks ago on a podcast here. So check that out, too. Victor, we're almost out of time. We thank our listeners. 
who've hung in here all these months. Some of you are new. Thanks for joining us. Hope you like it. If you are listening over iTunes or Apple Podcasts, you can rate the show zero to five stars. You can leave a comment. We read the comments. We also read the comments that are on Victor's uh, website. Some really interesting uh, uh, comments are left there. But for the ones on on uh, Apple, I'd like to share two uh, today. One's from Chief Chief Mike H one forty five. Truly enjoy Dr. Hansen. Victor Davis Hansen truly is the blue collar scholar. His humility is refreshing. He is a farmer and Stanford professor, two vastly different professions, yet he does both exceptionally well. I think that blue-collar scholar should be trademarked, Victor, mm. <laughs> a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. And then the other um, the other comments from MG123, exclamation point, Dr. Hansen, this title. I just wanted to say I really appreciate you. I love your podcast and the articles I read. Thank you for your voice. Please continue to speak and write. I love your recent article in the Epoch Times. I tell everyone about you Encourage and encourage them to listen to your podcast. Thank you, MG123 exclamation point. Thanks, Chief Mike H145 and everyone else who left comments, including those who say shut up, Fowler. Victor, thank you for all the wisdom that you have shared today and we will be back soon with another episode of the victor davis hansen show thanks bye-bye thank you everybody for listening we'll see you next time 